Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast where experts answer questions and share real-world examples that you, the listener, can incorporate as part of your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. I'm your host, Bill Widener, and yes, this is the first episode of 2020. Today, we are recording at the Bid at Hudson Square with my guest, Ellen Baer, President and CEO of the Hudson Square Business Improvement District, aka BID. Ellen, you have quite a history as a change agent. You've developed and implemented public-private real estate partnerships, both nationally and in New York City for over 25 years. You were the Senior Vice President for Development Strategies at the Tarragon Development Corporation, a partner at the Economic Development and Real Estate Consulting Firm, HR&A Advisors, and previously you served in New York City as Chief of Staff to the First Deputy Mayor, Vice President for Waterfront Development at the Economic Development Corporation, and is Director of the Concession Division for the Department of Parks and Recreation. Currently, you are a board member of the New York City Bid Managers Association, advocating for issues of importance to the NYC's 76 business improvement districts and to the thousands of businesses they represent. And you served on the board of WX in Real Estate, Gay Men's Health Crisis, and the International Economic Development Council. You completed your BA from Hamilton College and an MBA from Baruch here in New York City. Wow. Welcome to the show, Ellen. It's great to be here, Bill. Welcome to Hudson Square. Thanks, And as I said before, we are recording here at the Hudson Square Bid Offices, which is on Varick Street. So we might get some city sounds, which I guess will make it more real. Realty Speak listeners, today Ellen will share the story of how to transform a 20th century industrial district into an authentic 21st century live-work-play neighborhood and share the resulting upside experienced by all the stakeholders. Ellen, before we dive in, please share with our listeners the story of how you landed in Hudson Square, which, by the way, is not to be confused with Hudson Yards. Well, in fact, when I started in Hudson Square in 2009, Hudson Yards was sort of in the category of the Second Avenue subway in terms of things that might or might not happen in New York City. So uh, we didn't really think about Hudson Yards at that time. But I started in Hudson Square uh, back in 2009. I am the founding president of the Hudson Square Business Improvement District, and I've been here for 10 years now. Tell us a little bit about the story of how that started. Like, did you choose it? Were you chosen for it? What happens when a bid is being formed, the commercial property owners get together and decide that they need some supplementary services that the city is not offering for some reason. Our story was somewhat unique, really led by Trinity Real Estate, which at the time controlled about 40% of the real estate in Hudson Square. The commercial property owners in this area got together and realized that in order to advance, in order to create value in the area, that uh, you really had to create a neighborhood around here. You see, the, the thing that most people know most about this neighborhood, or one of the things people know, is that it's the location of the Holland Tunnel. So we had here a bunch of empty uh 
1920s Art Deco style industrial buildings. That was what characterized the buildings. What characterized the, the streets was really loading and unloading and traffic going to the Holland Tunnel. So the property owners realized that in order to create value out of the buildings that were here, they would have to really create the infrastructure and a neighborhood around these buildings in order to fill them up. Uh, and so they decided to put together a business improvement district at that time where owners would, as they do in bids, would voluntarily assess themselves and would then use that money in order to create neighborhood development. So when you say voluntary assess, what do you mean by that? When a bid is formed, every bid goes through a process of approval from owners, from property owners, commercial property owners. So all the commercial property owners that are in the borders of the proposed bid? All the commercial property owners that are in the borders of the proposed bid have an opportunity to get together, opine on the plan, and then they vote on whether they want to voluntarily assess themselves. Is that just retail and office owners, or does that also include multifamily owners and mixed-use owners? And we, have, we have different classes of property, but a business improvement district is really concentrated and, and weighted towards the commercial property owners, which includes retail and office. Right. So those are the ones that actually get together and vote on it. Generally. I mean, uh, multifamily, we had very little multifamily here at the time, Generally, multifamily property owners and condo owners and, and residential tenants, of course, have an opportunity to weigh in as well. Those classes of properties, we call them, are assessed at a much lower rate. So the burden really falls to the commercial property owners. Therefore, they're the ones who are making the decision about the assessment. And I guess you started with a clean slate. So 2009, let's think, what was it like in 2009? 2009, that's like right after the recession. Yes, so it's kind of a clean slate that maybe somebody was going to not bother with anymore. Yes, it was a completely clean slate. In fact, I was given, when I was finally selected, I was given a binder uh, with the district plan, as we call it in there. That's really our charter, uh, which lays out our mission and the things that we hope to accomplish. I was given the book and told, here, go make it happen. So I really started from scratch. No staff, no bank account, uh, no budget, nothing. So did you like sit in a dark room and look at this binder and think to yourself, what have I got myself into? There were lights in the room and I didn't, uh, I didn't take the opportunity to uh, wonder, worry about what I'd gotten myself into. I'm the kind of person where you give me a brick wall and I just figure out, okay, how am I going to get through this? I don't stand there and say, oh, a brick wall. So this is probably a good time to maybe, well, you kind of touched on what a, what a bid is, a business improvement district, but- you know, people might be thinking, well, is this something that is common just in New York or New York City, or is this something that's statewide, national, global? Bids are global. They sometimes go under different names. Sometimes you'll hear of a special improvement district or, or a SID. You'll hear of a special assessment district. There are various names, but the name BID is the most common business improvement district, and they exist all over the world. The first bid, in fact, was in Toronto. In New York City, uh, we have more bids than any other city in the world. We have 76. And they're scattered all over all the boroughs? Yes, they're throughout the five boroughs. Your counterparts in other bids, do you have an association where you can interact with these people, either face-to-face -face or online? 
or at conferences? We have a, a bid association, which is a very robust group. I chaired it for a while. We take turns chairing it. I'm on the board of the association, and uh, all the bids in New York City are members of the bid association. Uh, we meet frequently. We deal with issues of common concern. We learn from each other, and it's one of the great privileges of my job to learn from my colleagues who are really wonderfully smart people. All right. And that's in New York. But what about nationally and globally? Uh, there's an organization called the IDA, which is the International Downtown Association, where like organizations from all over the, the world really come together for conferences. You become a member, you get to have access to information. There's a real collegiality in this field. People are really happy to help each other from all over the world. In New York City, what are the youngest bids? In Staten Island, there are two uh, youngish bids. There are many bids in formation also. Lots of communities want to have bids that were growing all the time. And uh, what's the oldest bid in New York City? That's the Union Square Business Improvement District. Oh, the Union Square. Yeah. Love Union Square. Go to the farmer's market there all the time. Let's explore the timeline of the Hudson Square bid. It's 2009. You have this binder with the vision And by the way, are you the visionary? Because you said they gave you a binder. What was it called? What was the plan actually? It's called our district plan. The district plan. Is the district plan also a district vision? I would say the district plan represents the district vision. It also is a resource allocation document uh, because you use the district plan to set the budget for the the bid. So I would say it's a visionary document, but you know, a, a vision when it's swimming around in your head, is just that, a vision. It really takes boots on the ground to turn that vision into something a little bit real. So what's the first thing that happens? The first thing that happens is you get an office, you open a bank account, and you hire a staff. The office that we're in now, is that the original office? It is indeed. And where's the money come from that goes in the bank account? I was able to beg, borrow, and steal a little bit of credit to get our bank account going. We took a professional responsibility or personal responsibility loan, which I took out in order to sort of float ourselves until our assessment dollars started flowing. It's sort of a funny story, actually, because I was given this binder in early April, and I really hit the ground in May. And I I was under the impression that I was supposed to have everything up and running by July 1st. And so I proceeded to work 24 hours a day to get that done. When I did do that, and we had our first board meeting in September, everyone said, wow, you got everything up and running so fast. As I say, just give me a brick wall and I'll go through it. But it was kind of nice that you didn't know because now you were ahead of the game. Well, we were ahead of the game. And also, you know, you can't really do anything, accomplish anything until you have your team together. That's the most important thing. So how, how big was the team when you started? Uh, the original team was four people. And what were their roles? Well, that was an interesting thing because nobody told me what, what the roles should be. As I thought about what needed to happen here, I realized that there were two critical areas that we needed to be thinking about. One was sort of streetscape and traffic, a planning function. We really needed to figure out how we were going to create this neighborhood, how we were going to mitigate the impacts of traffic. And when I say mitigate the impacts of traffic, I mean really create a neighborhood that focused more on pedestrians than on cars and trucks. So we had to think about how we were going to do that, how we were going to stimulate the ground floor environment so that retailers would want to come here. So I knew we needed somebody 
who was going to be able to put together some planning to do that. The second area that I knew that we needed was a marketing person. I like to say that when we started, it was Hudson Ware. And even though people still today aren't as familiar with Hudson Square as we would like them to be, we've made enormous strides. So I knew that we needed someone who was going to help us put Hudson Square on the map, and it was going to help us identify and cultivate the brand and the um, do a marketing plan for the neighborhood. And so the second executive that I hired was a marketing person. Uh, and then the fourth person was just an assistant uh, to run around like crazy doing everything because we didn't really know what we were doing. And I have to admit that before you and I first spoke about doing an episode on Hudson Square, to me it was Hudson Square, and I didn't even really know what a bid was. Well, one of the things that we just have to be realistic about here is that Hudson Square has long been known to the commercial real estate industry as a submarket, part of Midtown South, really, in terms of submarkets. And it really is was originally, 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 the name Hudson Square comes from an actual place when back in the 1700s, when Trinity Church really controlled all the property in this neighborhood. The, the name fell out of use very much so. And it was really in the mid to late 20th century that the commercial real estate market started talking about this sort of unique area, which was the old printing district. The name is more and more in common use, and we have managed to literally get ourselves on the map. Uh, we're on some uh, city maps, on some tourism maps, uh, subway maps, on maps all over the place. So we're, we're getting there. It takes a while. Yeah, and if you Google Hudson Square, the Google Maps does actually highlight the area. Uh, and, and I guess the borders are Houston Street to the north, the Hudson River to the west, Varick Street and parts of 6th Avenue to the east, and Canal Street to the south. Yeah, just one minor correction, which is the northern boundary is really Clarkson Street, which when you go east is called Carmine Street. People know Clarkson Street because there's an exit off the West Side Highway. And the, the reason that's the boundary, there are really a couple of reasons. One is it's at Clarkson Street that 7th Avenue South turns into Varick Street. But more important than that, it's at Clarkson Street that the building types, which so define the Hudson Square neighborhood, these loft-style buildings, it's at Clarkson Street that those buildings really begin. You can stand north of Hudson Square, and you see where it begins. It's very obvious. You may not know what it's called. You may not know what's going on there, but you know that there's something special about this neighborhood that's defined by its building types. What was the breakdown of occupancy in the Hudson Square area when you started back in 2009, you know, you said it was the printing district. So was it mostly commercial offices and industrial? How much residential was here? Was there retail before 2009? How did that break down? So let me take you back a little bit. Really, Hudson Square uh, was the printing district. And if you ask, I like to say lawyers of a certain age or accountants, finance people of a certain age, they will remember coming down here, especially to Varick Street, to get their documents printed, waiting for documents to be printed that they needed. But that really started ending in the 1970s. The printers started moving out. So these buildings were largely vacant for many, many years after that. In 1986, Saatchi & Saatchi, the advertising agency, built the first new building that had been built down here in decades. 
And yes, they built a new building. They It wasn't adaptive reuse, which is what really dominates the neighborhood here. They did build a new building, but what's important is they started bringing creative tenants in here. And really it was in at the beginning of the 21st century that Hudson Square's moment really came because the building types and the way that people started to work, particularly in media and creative industries, came together. Our sunlit spaces, the old loft-style buildings, all became the kind of thing that was really desired by tech firms, by creative firms. And so everything sort of came together at that time. And it's around that time that the bid was formed to help this neighborhood take off. There was very, very little retail. In fact, when this was a printing district, we estimate that there were about 12,000 people working here because, you know, you had big printing presses taking up a lot of the buildings. When we got here in 2009, we think there were about 30,000 people working here, a daytime population, about 30,000 people. That includes some students. There were some schools here. Today, there are over 70,000 people here. And then we have Disney and Google moving in. There'll be another 15,000 people over the next few years. So we've really exploded with growth. The retail has grown as a result of that. There was very little retail here when we came here. And even today, retail here is different than it is elsewhere in the city in many ways. When you say 70,000 people, does that include residents or is that just people working in the area? That's our daytime population. So there's, there's another piece to our story, which is that as a printing district, and there were many other kinds of manufacturing here over the years, we were zoned as a manufacturing district. And part of our strategy to make Hudson Square an authentic New York City neighborhood was to rezone the area so that we could start having some more residential. Within the actual bid itself, when we first came down here, in 2009, there were about 300 residents in the entire neighborhood, which we look at a little bit more broadly than the technical boundaries of the bid at that time. There were about 3,000 residents. We're looking today at many thousands more coming to this area as a result of a rezoning that took place in 2013 and a second rezoning that took place in 2017. So we see a lot of residential development going on here creating a real 24-7 neighborhood. I just want to clarify something. So you said 300 and then you said 3,000. This is kind of wonky and technical and nobody cares but us. But the bid itself is slightly smaller or was, today it's, it's a little bit more accurate, but it was slightly smaller than what we call the Hudson Square neighborhood. You know, New Yorkers don't think in jaggedy lines uh, that are laid out by jurisdictions, taxing jurisdictions, or in our case, assessment jurisdictions. They think in terms of neighborhoods. I'm a New Yorker. I know how New Yorkers think. And so we talk technically about the boundaries of the original bid, which is an assessment district. And then we talk about the Hudson Square neighborhood itself, which is the way human beings think. So the Hudson Square neighborhood then had how many residents? It was about 3,000 at the time. And now it's up to how many? Now it's up to about 6,000, but there's a lot of residential development ongoing. Let's talk about some of the residential development. Is it the business improvement district that has actually stimulated that? We like to think that we certainly helped. The rezoning clearly stimulated the residential development because residential development was allowed for the first time. I mean, think about it. Here we are surrounded by Greenwich Village to the north, Tribeca to the south, and Soho to the east. But you couldn't have residential development here. So imagine 
what was unlocked once that rezoning took place. There was tremendous demand that was unlocked. Although we certainly participated, we helped with the rezoning, which was actually uh, sponsored by Trinity Real Estate at the time. While we were involved in that, we think that, that our biggest contribution is creating a streetscape here, is planting 250 trees, creating new open spaces, helping to mitigate physically and psychologically the impact of the Holland Tunnel. So we think we've had that kind of an impact on it, but the, the residential development was largely responding to pent-up demand. What has the Hudson Square bid and you specifically done to mitigate the impact of the Holland Tunnel entrance? One of our signature programs, perhaps our best-known signature program, is pedestrian safety managers. The city at many tunnel entrances has traffic enforcement agents and police directing traffic, but those agents are only at the very entrance to the tunnel and they're only focusing on cars. So we have our pedestrian safety managers out on the streets during the evening rush when the commuters are going home to New Jersey and their focus is on keeping the intersections clear, making sure that cars don't block the box. And as a happy result of all that, that honking is diminished. It changes the psychology and also the actual atmosphere on the ground so that it's more pedestrian oriented. What impact over the last 10 years has there been on residential rents? Well, this is primarily a condo market now. There is some rental housing coming in here to be sure. At this point, the market here is just a touch below the market in Tribeca. That's significant. And that didn't exist 10 years ago or 15 years ago. No, not at all. How about commercial rents, retail rents, and office rents? Office rents have really skyrocketed in this area. When we were discovered, as I like to say, to be part of Midtown South and discovered by the creative industries, there developed a tremendous appetite for the space here. The whole area here feels like a creative campus in a way. It really does have a campus-like feeling. And so office rents, which were in the high 20s, low 30s, are averaging in the mid-70s here. And it's not unusual for commercial property owners to get rents in the, in the three digits in this area. Wow. And that's per square foot per year. Yes. And how about retail rents? So retail is a different story. The retail rents here really differ depending on location, really dramatically differ. So that while you can get retail rents on 6th Avenue and Spring Street, which is adjacent to Soho, which are probably in the high hundreds, maybe even 200 bucks a foot, you really can't get those kinds of rents as you sort of get closer and closer to the Holland Tunnel and closer and closer to the still industrial areas that we have here. We like to think of the retail here being primarily ancillary retail. We have a tremendous grab-and-go lunch market. Those are some of our most successful retail establishments. With more residents, we have more and more of a demand curve that includes nights and weekends. But still, the dominant activity here is during the week. So retail rents can be anywhere from 30 to 40 to 50 bucks a foot, depending on the location. But as you said, in some locations, up to $200 a foot. Yes. That's quite a range. We're quite a neighborhood. Is this something you're keeping track of on an ongoing basis? Is there a place where people can go and actually look at this data that you and I just discussed? Yes, at HudsonSquareBid.org. It'll be easy for people to find any of the information that they want because the navigation is very clear. 
At the end of the episode, we'll also give people a way that they can get in touch with the Hudson Square bid so that if there's something they can't come up with, they can reach out and get it there. Let's go back to the zoning and your interaction with community boards, the Department of Buildings, and city planning. What was the process there? You said that much of the rezoning was done by the property owners and Trinity Real Estate, but that you did participate. Was the city more open because you do have a business improvement district? What was the process there? How did that go? How long did it take? Trinity Real Estate, very unusually, was what's called the applicant for the zoning to city planning. It's unusual for a single property owner to be the applicant for a neighborhood-wide rezoning. And I just want to clarify something there. Is Trinity Real Estate the owner of most of the land and then they do land leases? Trinity Real Estate is the owner of about 40% of the land and they do land leases for that. There are parcels today that are not owned by Trinity, but they rarely sell a piece of real estate. Those parcels that aren't owned by Trinity, they also benefited from the change in zoning. Yes, particularly people who own vacant land. Most of the vacant land at that time was owned by Trinity. One thing that was interesting about the rezoning is that city planning was very concerned that we have a commercial retention strategy. And so the rezoning, it's called the Hudson Square Special District, really discourages in many ways the demolition of commercial buildings in order to build residential buildings. A little irony here. Uh, The reason that the rezoning was undertaken was to give us this 24-7 neighborhood and to allow for residential. But we are such a hot commercial market that several of the vacant land sites that we expected to have developed as residential are being developed for commercial, notably the site where uh, Disney is going and about half of the site where Google is going. And Disney is going to be done in 2020... 2023. 2023. And how about Google? Google is already moving into some existing buildings, but their campus at 550 Washington will be done around the same time as Disney. Quick little break here, Realty Speak fans, to take a moment to share with you that I love that you choose to listen and learn from Realty Speak. We go deep with so many topics on the show. The result? You get plenty of great information and strategies you can use. And what I learned from my guest as the creator and host of Realty Speak translates to me being the best I can be as a trusted advisor, consultant, and real estate broker. Remember, every transaction is different, and so are you, the people involved. A successful outcome will depend on execution of proper planning, and I welcome the opportunity to listen closely to your desired outcome and then carefully guide you through the process to ultimately achieve your goals. So, if you're contemplating a purchase into your portfolio or a sale out of your portfolio of a building or development site, or you would like to refinance, get a purchase mortgage or construction loan on investment real estate, then feel free to reach out to me. I can help you no matter where you're located. Happy to chat. No transaction required. Call me. The number, 917 232 8529. And all my contact info is on the contact page of my website, BillWidener.com. That's B I L L W E I D N E R.com. What else can I say? Real estate is in my DNA. 
And now back to the show. The first rezoning took place in 2013, and the second one was 2017. So if we go back to 2009, I guess it took uh, four years for the first one, and I guess eight years for the second one. No, it took, I would say it took way longer than four years for the first one. If you were to ask Trinity, it, it took several lifetimes. But the rezoning was in the works as the bid was in the works, the original rezoning, the 2013 rezoning. That was really the big creation of the Hudson Square Special District. What percentage of the area was rezoned as of 2013? So as of 2013, the original boundaries of the bid was rezoned 100%. And part of the reason that the the bid was helpful in that process was that we were able to be a vehicle to assure that public amenities would be installed and maintained in association with the zoning. The second rezoning, which is the 2017 rezoning, is really just the rezoning of what was the St. John's Terminal, which is uh, was at that time the largest footprint office building in Manhattan. It's where the High Line originally terminated. And that building, which had been very underutilized for a number of years, was rezoned. Just that building was rezoned. And in that action, the developers also gave $100 million to Hudson River Park for excess air rights. So that was a separate rezoning that really only dealt with 550 Washington. And that was rezoned to... It was rezoned to allow, there was a a hybrid scenario, which allowed the building to be divided into about half residential and half commercial. Now, with this residential development that's going on in Hudson Square, is there mandatory inclusionary housing? This was before mandatory inclusionary housing, but there is voluntary inclusionary housing, and there is a bonus provision for that. And several of the developments are including affordable housing. So there are some affordable rentals in the area. Yes, there are some affordable rentals in the area. Who would you say are the stakeholders that are benefiting most from this? The office building owners, the retail building owners, the existing co-ops, and I guess there weren't really any existing condos, but there are new condos now, and then, of course, the multifamily rental properties. Who would you say are the stakeholders that are benefiting most from the Hudson Square bid? Oh, I, I think that probably the biggest beneficiary are the commercial tenants, and therefore, of course, the commercial property owners. Let me just say a word about that. With the creative companies and the tech companies who are coming into Hudson Square today, of course, they're concerned about rent. They're running businesses. But their real challenge for their businesses is attracting talent. And one of the things that the Hudson Square bid tries to do is to provide a neighborhood which will be a tool for these companies in attracting talent. I talked about the campus-like environment that we've created here. That's something that we like to say that if someone is being offered a job at a company X, which is located somewhere else in New York City or somewhere else outside of New York City, and they're being offered the same job for the same salary in Hudson Square, We want to be able to make the difference. We want to be able to say, we want that person to say, this neighborhood is great. It's a place I want to work. These things are important to a lot of the people who are choosing where to work today. And we hope to help satiate that competition for talent. Disney and Google obviously are going to be here. Google is already occupying some of the existing space that they've leased. Who are some of the other tenants 
that are attracting talent to the neighborhood? We have so many. We have places as diverse as Warby Parker and New York Public Radio. We have Edelman Public Relations. We still have Saatchi and Saatchi. We have Horizon Media. We have Viacom. And then we have lots of small companies, companies of videographers and uh, different kinds of graphic designers. And we have artists of different kinds, people experimenting with sound and experimenting with light, people who are creating new products to bring to the technology market for use by creative industries. We have a lot of companies that decide that they want to have their marketing arms down here. So for example, Pepsi has a small marketing office here. Other agencies, some of the, some of the accounting firms have marketing offices down here because there's just something about creativity and innovation that thrives when people are surrounded with like minds. It's a wonderful thing to stand online at a lunch place in Hudson Square and hear the kinds of things that people are talking about and the ideas that are being exchanged. How was Google and Disney attracted to Hudson Square? I want to tell the story about Disney because I just love this story. There was a big site owned by Trinity. It was multiple buildings. And once it became known that Disney was looking for space, I'm sure that there were neighborhoods all over the city vying for such a marquee tenant to come into their area. What we're told is that actually Bob Iger, who's the head of Disney, without anybody knowing it, walked some of those neighborhoods because what Disney wanted was to capture a certain kind of culture for their workers and that he walked and walked and walked around here and I guess nobody recognized him. He came to feel that this was really the kind of place that he thought that Disney could thrive. He really picked up the vibe of what's going on in this neighborhood, going on on the streets, going on in the cafes, going on on the lines of people waiting for lunch. He really picked it up and thought, geez, this is really where we want to be. What are some of the legacy features of Hudson Square that you preserved in terms of businesses and streetscape? When we first started doing our plan, the first thing we did is we went on a listening tour. And something really interesting happened. We found that the Okay, there were 30,000 people working here, not 70,000 at the time. We certainly didn't talk to all 30,000. But we found that everybody who we talked to who worked here and lived here, maybe took classes here, we found they really loved it here. And so we began, as we began to do our plan, we began to think, gee, we don't want to change a place that people really love. What would be the point of that? So everything we've done tries to preserve the essence of this neighborhood. And the essence of this neighborhood is something that's gritty. It's authentically New York. The buildings very much typify what this neighborhood feels like. And we've really tried to preserve that in everything we do. Surrounding neighborhoods, we have Soho, we have Greenwich Village, the West Village, Tribeca. How has the Hudson Square bid impacted those locations? Well, I think something interesting is that, and I say this as a New Yorker, in the old days before 2009, if you wanted to walk from Tribeca to Greenwich Village, a lot of people went around Hudson Square because it was so uninviting to walk through this, what felt like a highway, really. So I think one of the big things that we've done is we've helped create continuity between the neighborhoods. We also hope that we're helping people in Soho uh, and in neighborhoods to the east to encourage them to walk 
east-west as well as north-south, because at the very edge of our boundaries, we have the wonderful Hudson River Park. And people feel that a park is closer if getting there is a more pleasant experience. So I think that's the real impact that we've had on the surrounding neighborhoods. We call this placemaking. As a new tourist in New York, which of course I'm not, I mean, you can tell by my accent, but when a new tourist comes to New York and they're coming to Hudson Square, what, what are some of the places that they should visit? There are places for tourists to visit in Hudson Square. There's the very wonderful Children's Museum of the Arts, which is not just a place for tourists, but really a place for people from all over the city who want to find great things to do with their kids. I highly recommend it. There is here Art Center, which is a place for avant-garde theater. There's also the Soho Playhouse, which has some wonderful shows. There is the Fire Museum, which is a quirky little museum that is actually run by the Fire Department of the City of New York and has some very interesting 9-11 exhibits there. And I guess the best thing that we want people to do when they're here is really walk around, because this is what New York really feels like. And there's a really cool old bar here, isn't there? Oh, the Ear Inn is absolutely, it's one of the oldest bars in New York. How old is it? You know, it dates back to the early 1800s. One thing very cool about the Ear Inn, I find this very cool. I get all geeked out about stuff like this. If you go outside, of, if you look at the sidewalk outside the Ear Inn, there is a, a demarcation there where New York... Manhattan Island specifically originally ended before we started filling in and creating concrete all the way west of there. Interestingly, when Sandy struck, the line that the water went up to followed almost exactly that original shoreline of Manhattan. Pretty cool. That's a very cool fact. I didn't know that. That's very interesting. You told us the Disney story. What about the Google story? You know, Google is looking for property everywhere. They are very committed to the Lower West Side of Manhattan. The property here is walking distance. It's a decent walk, but it's walking distance from their other campus. And it gave them an unparalleled opportunity to really create a big footprint. The building that they're moving into has very large floor plates. And that was something that's really important to them. And a lot of tech companies today, and Google typifies this as well as anyone, there's sort of a horizontal culture rather than a vertical culture. They want their people laid out on the same floor. And this building, which the St. John's Terminal, which had the largest floor plate of any building in Manhattan, it gives them the opportunity to do that. So they were very excited about that. They also saw an opportunity to move in into some lease space in some of our other buildings. They, too, were attracted to the culture. Like people, I guess, want to be around like people. Has Amazon knocked on the door? They haven't knocked on my door. Oh, well, maybe they'll listen to this, and maybe they'll knock on the door. Not to cast any aspersions at Amazon at all. I have an economic development background, so I understand how subsidies go, but Google and Disney and everyone else who has come here has come here without any public subsidy. So they're funding the whole thing. That's great. They're funding the whole thing. And while we're talking about funding, what does it cost the property owners in the area to have a business improvement district as part of where they're located? Different bids have different ways of assessing property owners. In our case, our budget is $3.2 million a year. That budget is spread out 
primarily, they're, they're very small, completely inconsequential assessments for residential and for vacant land. So the budget is almost completely spread out over commercial square footage. And how much per square foot does that end up being? It varies depending on the number of square feet, but it ends up being in the mid-20s cents per square foot. I was going to say $20. Whoa. No, no, no. No, no, no. <laughs> and I like to say I like to say to my building owners, you know, we're we're charging you, you know, 26, 27 cents a square foot. You have to believe that we're creating that much value for you. Otherwise, why would you have us here? Well, based on the difference between $30 a square foot and $70 a square foot, I would say the 20 cents is a good investment. I would like to take credit <laughs> for the entire delta, but I don't think I can. Yeah, but obviously you had a lot to do with it. We hope so. So tell us a little bit about the 10-year anniversary. 2019. The 10-year anniversary was very exciting to us. And we had a special program, a couple of special programs, actually. The most exciting thing was we had something called Hudson Square Canvas. Working with our building owners, we had original artists come and paint murals on the walls of several of our buildings, also working with the Port Authority. We have art on a fence of a park we created on Port Authority property near the Holland Tunnel. We also have put something called Street Cathedral, which we work with the city on, which are art sculptures, sort of acrylic sculptures that are on light poles throughout the district. And so Hudson Square Canvas has been our great gift to the neighborhood, which we use to celebrate the creativity and the essence of this neighborhood uh, as part of our 10th anniversary. We also created an award called 10 and 10. And our board selected the 10 Hudson Square companies that we think best epitomize the values and the excitement and the creative energy of the neighborhood. And I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, what we've been talking about so far, while people are involved, we're talking mostly about real estate. And real estate really doesn't have any value without the people that believe in it. I think that's a very important point. One of the most important things that we do is create community. People want community. I think especially in a time where so much of the workday is spent in an isolated environment. So we do programming, just creating venues, just creating parks and open spaces for people to go in their downtime is a tremendous way to create community. We have over 50,000 people using our open spaces, the open spaces that we've created. We have something called street seats, which are little seats that uh, sort of cafe seating that goes out uh, at lunchtime during the nice weather. We put art on the street. In addition to Hudson Square Canvas, we've had sculptures and other kinds of art on the street. We have programs, we have events, we have Pilates and meditation, if you can believe people meditate near the Holland Tunnel. And we have Live at Lunch, which is a music program we have in one of our open spaces. And people love having these programs. Well, I'm going to be a tourist from the financial district, and I'm going to come over to Hudson Square and spend a little more time here because it sounds like a really, really cool place. It must be incredibly satisfying, Ellen, to sit here almost 11 years later and look back at what's been created and know that you were an integral part of that. And, you know, when you described at the beginning of the episode, taking that binder and looking at it and then working 24 hours a day for three months to get stuff done that you really didn't have to get done that quickly, but you did. Because like you say, when you see a brick wall, you figure out how to go through it. Just describe to our listeners what that feels like to look back at the journey. Uh, it's a wonderful luxury to be able to look back at the journey. 
you know, there's something very satisfying. I think people in real estate feel this all the time. There's something very satisfying about being able to see and touch your accomplishments. The fact that we've planted here over 250 trees, I should say planted or retrofitted. We came up with a new way of planting trees. And we can see the trees and we can see the shade that it provides and we can see the joy that people have in using the open spaces that we have developed and that we program and operate and curate brings enormous satisfaction. And of course, I get enormous satisfaction from the people I work with, from our absolutely fantastic board of directors, which is made up of commercial property owners, commercial tenants, a residential tenant, government officials, and my fantastic staff. Earlier in the episode, you mentioned that your staff consisted of four people when you started. How many on the staff now? Eight. So you doubled the staff. A huge doubling of the staff. Yeah, it's, huge. It's beyond description. <laughs> we, we like to say to people when they come to us with all these projects, these ambitious projects, and we're always going, yes, yes, we'll do it, we'll do it. But look, there are only eight of us. We can only move so fast and do so much. But it looks like you, you have a very, very efficient well-run organization, and it's not for profit, right? I mean, it's, it's a, a not-for-profit, yeah, yes. A 503... 501c3. Oh, okay. 501c3, I always get those mixed up. Thank you for clarifying that. Well, this business improvement district, Hudson Square, has obviously been successful. There's plenty of evidence for that. Are there times when somebody takes on this task and it doesn't work? I mean, things ebb and flow. I am not aware of any bid, I'm searching my memory, but I'm not aware of any bid that has gone out of existence. There are bids where certainly they've had struggles with their projects, with their services, even with their executive directors. But by and large, bids are treasured by the communities where they operate. Realty Speak is listened to all over the country, actually all over the world. And I'm sure there are people listening and saying, hey, you know, we could do this in this particular location or that particular location. And think about the impact that we would have. What would be your recommendation to them on a way to get started? Because you said, you know, you put in a resume for the position. But what if someone says, hey, this is like the perfect position for me. How do I get it started so that I get to be the person that does this? Well, you don't really start a bid with an executive director. You really start it with the people in the community, having a vision, wanting to get together, having services or and programs that they feel the city or whatever their local jurisdiction is not providing. So the growth of a bid really has to come from the people in the community, from primarily the commercial property owners. And then once a bid is formed, they have to go out and find somebody who's crazy enough to run it. Like you. Like me. We're getting close to the end of the episode at this point. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you'd like to share with the listeners? I'm just very proud of everything we've accomplished. And I, I do appreciate, Bill, you asking me to sort of look back on those accomplishments, because it's been quite a decade for Hudson Square. It's been quite a decade for all of us here, and we are extremely proud of what we've done. Ellen, we're getting to the point where we may run out of time, and I know you have things that you need to complete today, and I want to respect your time. But before we go, what is your vision for the next five to 10 years for Hudson Square? Our focus is really on the ground floor environment. And I think the challenge for us is to try and maintain the authenticity 
that has made Hudson Square the place that it is, especially with challenges to retail and to the way uh, ground floor space is used. We want to continue to develop more and more open space. We want always to be responsive to the realities of climate change, and we want to be responsive to the needs of resiliency uh, in neighborhoods. But we also want to start working with our property owners to think about how can we enliven these ground floor spaces? How can we continue to attract people to our buildings? If the ground floor environment dies in a neighborhood, it's not New York anymore. And maybe it's somewhere else. Maybe it's worse. Maybe it's nowhere. And so we have to continue to work with our property owners, with our tenants, with all the people in the neighborhood to listen and to understand what we can do to meet the challenges that real estate is facing and that neighborhoods are facing to continue to make people want to walk around and appreciate the authentic experience that is New York. And it's so true because New York City, especially Manhattan, where I spend most of my time and obviously you spend most of your time, it is so walkable. And it's amazing that something that's so big and so populated can have these little small enclaves like Hudson Square that you call a neighborhood, and then you have access to the rest of it at your doorstep. It is amazing. You know, New York is a city of neighborhoods, and Hudson Square, the one thing that we haven't talked about yet is it is easy to get here. We have the best subway access. We have buses. You can walk here from Tribeca and Soho. You can even take ferries here someday, we hope. So we have terrific access here. And we really think that we are the kind of neighborhood that epitomizes what's best about New York. Ellen, this was over the top. What a first-rate understanding Realty Speak listeners now have around business improvement districts and the use of the concept to create transformation that is positive and sustainable. And for all of you that are listening in places other than New York City, this is a great overlay and template for what it is that you might be able to accomplish in your own locations. So really think about how you might be able to do that. Talk to your community, find out if they're interested in doing a business improvement district, and use this as a strategy to increase the value of the real estate and the experience of living in that community that you're in right now that could probably be something much better than it already is. Ellen, the Realty Speak listeners may want to reach out to you if they ask them questions about business improvement districts. What's the best way to reach Hudson Square BID? We have an active social media presence. We're reachable through Hudson Square on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We also are reachable directly through email at our info account. That is info at HudsonSquareBid.org. Info at HudsonSquareBid.org and the Twitter handle Hudson Square. Correct. And of course, you're on Facebook and Instagram. And listeners, I'm going to put that in the show notes. So if you're driving around, you don't have to worry about pulling over to write it down. Ellen, thank you so much for spending time with me in Realty Speak today and sharing all of this incredible information with our listeners. Thank you, Bill. Don't be a stranger to Hudson Square. Well, there you have it. 
Hey there, everyone. Thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining in for the next episode of Realty Speak, the podcast. You can subscribe right on the player and choose your favorite platform like iTunes or Google Play Music, or just search for us on your favorite podcast app like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android devices, or Apple Podcasts for iPhone. And please share our show with others. Just choose share on the player and choose your preferred social media platform. Of course, you can always get to me via the website at BillWidener.com. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And remember, it's not about us, but how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time, 